Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. Romans 14, verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Romans 14, verse 13 and following. Romans 14, verse 13 and following. If you turn there in your Bible, we're going to dig right in. But first I want to frame this and... I want to know how many of you are familiar with the episode of Andy Griffith where there's a big, huge baseball game between two rival towns, right, Mayberry and what's the name of that town next to Mayberry? I don't remember. But they're going to have this big game, and they can't figure out who's going to umpire the game, and they end up recruiting Andy Taylor, the sheriff of Mayberry, to umpire the game. And there's this huge moment when it's a tied ball game and there's a runner who's approaching home plate and as he crosses home plate, the ball is thrown to the catcher and he's tagged at just that perfect exact moment when he comes to the plate. And there's this huge controversy about whether he was safe or out and Andy actually, he calls it against Mayberry. And I can't remember, and that's his town, right? And everybody's freaking out because he's this traitor who's just stabbed his own hometown in the back, even his own son who is on the Mayberry team. And he's just put in a terrible position because what he's called on to do is something really crucial that most of us try to avoid at all costs. What is it that he's called on to do? He's called to adjudicate isn't he? He's called to adjudicate. He's called to make a determination about, in a small way, about the destiny of these two teams. He, he has legitimate authority to make a call that's going to determine winners and losers. And in this case, it's well within 
the bounds of what he's asked to do to make that determination. Well, what Paul's going to try to help us see today is that there are clear boundaries, clear boundaries for adjudication in the life of the individual Christian and especially in the life of the church. And it's essential to the unity of the church that we understand the legitimate arena for our adjudication. So we're going to take a look here at verses 13 and following to see exactly how Paul prescribes for us to approach judging and how he calls for us to avoid it. So look at verse 13. The first thing that he wants us to see is that, is that there's, there's a no longer and a but rather. No longer, but rather. Now, whenever you hear those two phrases, you kind of expect these to be clear and logical opposites, right? No longer, but rather. Usually when we hear that, we're going to hear something like, no longer brush your teeth with this toothpaste, but rather brush your teeth with this other toothpaste. But Paul's going to do something that he's done not, that Jesus actually does too. He's going to shift gears in between the no longer and the but rather. So one time Jesus does this is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. What happens is Jesus is asked this question, who is my neighbor, right? And how does Jesus answer? He doesn't answer with any sort of, with any sort of prescription about how to be a neighbor, does he? Rather, sorry, he doesn't answer with a description of who is your neighbor, Instead, he describes how to what? Be a neighbor. So he shifts gears in the middle of the answer. And Paul's doing the same thing here. He says, no longer, no longer pass judgment on one another, but rather don't be a stumbling block. You see that? So they don't seem like logical opposites, do they? But there's a word play here because where it says, look, it says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather decide that word decide is from the same root as the word past judgment. They have the same root. So if you were to listen to this sitting, having it read in Greek when you were in one of the first churches, you would hear these two words that are really close to each other. And you would know that Paul's trying to draw them together to help you realize what he's trying to say. And so a really clear way for us to get this would be no longer pass judgment on one another but rather adjudicate on how to not be a stumbling block. You see that? No longer pass judgment, but instead adjudicate yourself. Don't judge others. Instead, judge yourself. Right? He says that the, the way that we're to do this is to, is to ensure that we not grieve our brother for whom Christ died. And this is, this is going to be broken down kind of like at the beginning of this chapter. Remember, Nick talked last week about this dichotomy between weak and strong. You remember that? And the entire passage that Nick preached was really addressed in some ways to the weak brother. But this passage is addressed to the strong brother in a lot of ways. And this is like a rhetorical weak and strong. And Paul, I think, is using this language to his benefit because think about it. If we've got a church that's filled with both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, right? So we have a lot of people who are from a pagan background and a lot of people who have grown up with the law from a Jewish background. And he's trying to help them discover 
how to have unity within the body of Christ. And so he, he undermines the Jewish national pride by labeling them as the weaker brother on account of their sensitive conscience. But he also he, he invites the Gentile believers in by complimenting them in a way and calling them the stronger brother, which kind of sets them, it sets their defenses lower, right? You're the stronger brother, and I want to invite you to take responsibility as a stronger brother. So he has this rhetorical advantage as he uses this language. But it's not like, I don't think that Paul is labeling them as weak and strong in the same way that we would do that like at a weightlifting, at a weightlifting contest. Are you with me? I think it's rhetorical in order to advance his argument. So now he's going to say, look, no longer... Judge one another, but instead adjudicate your own decisions. So don't judge others. Instead, adjudicate yourself. And the first thing is going to be understand the rightful place of your liberties and make all of your decisions about when to, when to enjoy them on the basis of love. So you're going to adjudicate your own decisions on the basis of love rather than on the basis of gobbling up your liberties whenever you get a chance. And when talking about liberties, liberties are the special gift of the gospel. It's a choice benefit of the gospel that we have what we refer to as Christian liberties. Because we know that Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has made all things clean. Nothing is unclean. And Paul's going to make this argument multiple times in the course of this passage. So we have everything is ours because of Jesus. If you can find it in the world, then God made it and it's good. And that's absolutely true. But Paul's going to say that even though that's the case, how we decide to use those liberties should not be decided on the basis of how much we like them or how much freedom we have, you know, hypothetically, but rather love for our brothers especially our weaker brothers as those who are strong so he draws this dichotomy and then he's going to tell us why this is so important look at verses 16 through 19 so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So now Paul's going to give us the why. And he's going to say that there's something more essential to the Christian life than food and drink. There's something more essential to the Christian life than how we navigate these questions about what's okay and what's not okay. There's something more essential to the Christian life than rules, right? And he says that this thing that's more essential is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so he says that the Spirit-filled life is actually the essential thing for Christians. And we learned this in the in the Jesus catechism, what is, the, what is the sign of those who are in Christ? 
All those who are in Christ are a new creation, right? So this is what we mean when we say that we're a new creation, that we have the Holy Spirit. We've been made alive by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we have access to this new kind of life that's marked by things like righteousness, peace, and joy. It's probably shorthand for all of the fruit of the Spirit, right? And so Paul says that's the thing. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that marks the boundaries of the church. So the Holy Spirit is who determines where the church starts and where the church ends. Not, not your checklist of all the things that you've done or not done. So the essential thing is this obedience to the Spirit, a life of righteousness, peace, and joy. And now he's going to give us the motive, the motive for loving our brothers rather than chasing our liberties. He says in verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So if you want to be acceptable to God, the way to get there is by, is by the life of the Spirit. You see that? The way to be acceptable to God is through the life of the Spirit, not through meticulous rule keeping. Whether, and, and this has to do with our liberties as well. We don't get there by chasing our liberties. We don't get there by shunning our liberties. Neither of those things is relevant when it comes to pleasing God. We please God by being those who are a new creation. By being those who partake of the life of the Spirit. And then he gives us the conclusion, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And now we're going to get to verses 20 through 23 where Paul's going to set up what I think is the clincher of this entire passage. He says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. It says everything is indeed clean. And it's like Paul saying, hey, listen, I know you guys have been studying the gospel. I know you've read some of my letters. I know that you're theologically trained to a degree. I want you to know that I understand this theology, that everything is clean. That's not lost on me. I get it. But then he says, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Isn't that amazing? Think about that for a second. You can be doing something that's right, and someone else's response to it can make it wrong for you. You sin when you cause someone else to have a certain response to a good thing that you do. This is mind-blowing stuff. But what Paul's trying to articulate here is the radical unity of the church. The radical unity of the church. And that's why he sets up this weak, strong dichotomy. Right? Think about it in the Bible when Paul talks about weak and strong. What does he usually talk about? When anybody talks about weak and strong, what happens is we have a pronouncement of responsibility. Paul says that husbands are responsible for their wives. Why? Because she's what? The weaker vessel. I don't know exactly what that means. I've told some folks my wife could whip me sideways probably, so I don't think it's supposed to mean anything in the physical realm. But there's a weakness 
And I think it's, again, a rhetorical weakness that Paul holds up in order to elevate the responsibility of the man to be a protector, a provider, and someone who provides watch care over his wife. Same is true of kids. They're, they're weaker, and there's a responsibility to watch over them. And so Paul's elevating this responsibility that we have for other believers to such a degree that he says that our good thing can be transformed into sin for us by the response of another person. I don't know about y'all, but I think that's wild. Wild. And then he says, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now, he's already established that it's wrong if you think something's wrong, right? And now he's established that it's wrong if someone else thinks it's wrong. Keep your liberty between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And now Paul's going to show us this logical argument in these last few phrases. And it's in the form of a premise, a second premise, and a conclusion. Do y'all remember the standardized testing when you were in elementary school and high school? You would have these, these logical formulas written out and you would decide if they were true or false. You remember that? And it was like either fallacious or it was not fallacious, and you just kind of check a box and you're done with it. Well, it's the same formula that you find in those standardized testings, I think. And the first premise is this. Liberty is precious. Liberty is precious. And I think what Paul is trying to get across here is that our liberties are a treasure. Like if Jesus died for us to have this freedom, the whole book of Galatians is devoted to the beauty of freedom. Paul confronts Peter because of the importance of freedom. Jesus lives his life in this very overt freedom where he's calling the ruffians to himself. Just like David did at the cave of Adullam, right? There's this very clear motif of freedom all throughout scripture. Remember how David's wife gets mad at him because he dances in a certain way before the Lord. That's a freedom that the king experiences in his relationship with God. This freedom flows all the way throughout the Bible. And it's, it's articulated most clearly here in the New Testament in Galatians and in Romans. And Paul said, look, this freedom is absolutely precious. That you're no longer under the weight of the law. You're no longer... You're no longer condemned, but instead, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are accepted. And you're, you walk through the list of hundreds of laws, and your report card is absolutely irrelevant to your standing before God. Hallelujah! It's completely irrelevant. 
And Jesus' accomplishment through his life, death, and resurrection is the only thing that has relevance for your relationship with God. Liberty is precious, Paul says. And he, he says this in his own, he says, Blessed is the one, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Liberty is a blessing. It's precious. But here's the next thing. Check this out. But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. And we also know that it's wrong to cause someone to stumble. So what does that mean? The second premise is, if you flaunt, if you flaunt your liberty, you transform it in that moment from a blessing to condemnation for yourself. If you flaunt your liberty, you transform it from a blessing to condemnation for yourself. So the thing that you know is clean, the thing that you know is right, if you elevate that above the conscience of your brother, you transform this good thing into sin for you. So your, your accurate perspective on this now becomes sin rather than liberty. You see that? As soon as you elevate it above your brother. So let's, let's make this a very concrete example. Y'all, I joke around all the time about my Mountain Dew addiction, right? Everybody knows that I'm a lifelong Mountain Dew addict. You know, I'm recovered, but I'll always be a Mountain Dew addict, right? I can never, you can never safely put Mountain Dew around me. You have to always be cautious. Now, Johnny may know that nothing is unclean. That includes Mountain Dew. And he has the liberty to drink Mountain Dew as much as he wants to. And he'll just rogue it off, right? Like, it's fine. I'll just rogue more. Like, I'll get rid of the Mountain Dew. All the problems of the Mountain Dew, I'll take care of. They'll be gone. It'll be fine. Now, if Johnny knows that I have this problem with Mountain Dew, and if I drink one, I'm going to drink 17, and yet he chooses to drink Mountain Dew in front of me, he's now transformed his liberty into condemnation. Do you see that? Because he's elevated his love for Mountain Dew above his love for me as his brother. Knowing that this is a stumbling block for me. Something that I see as sin. Now that's a silly, it's a silly example, but that illustrates what's happening here. What kind of transactions are occurring in Paul's rhetoric. Right? So, so if you flaunt your liberty, you transform it from a blessing to condemnation. So that's the second premise. And what's the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is keep it between yourself and God. Keep it between yourself and God. He says the faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. In other words, the best thing you can do, because you know that liberty is precious, and you know that if you flaunt it, it becomes condemnation, the best approach is to keep it between yourself and God. In other words, you hold your liberty as an intimate 
and precious gift purchased at the expense of Christ's blood. And you hold to it in that way. Now the best illustration I can give is uh, Kurt and I and a buddy of ours used to, about once every three to six months, we'd go to this restaurant in Louisville that has the best spinach and artichoke dip in the entire world. I cannot remember the name of the restaurant. Drew, you remember the name of the restaurant? You know what I'm talking about? What is it? KT's, okay, it's down, it's, it's really close to the seminary, it's down in a little hill back behind the seminary property. Amazing, amazing spinach and artichoke dip. And back when I was in seminary, I was so, so broke. Gosh, I was so broke. And I could only afford to eat at this place every once in a while, and I, I don't for all I know, Kurt might have paid for it. Like, it I, I just know that I was not able to go to this place very often. And so the three of us, would, we'd order our food and we would split an appetizer of this spinach and artichoke dip. And I would treat that artichoke dip like Emily treats ice cream at Jenny's. Emily doesn't use the normal spoon. She uses the sample spoon to eat her ice cream. So it will last and last and last and last, this tiny little spoon. And I would like just lightly brush my chip across the surface of the artichoke dip, right, to get just this tiny amount on there to make this artichoke dip last as long as possible, and they bring you more chips, and you keep on eating the dip, I mean, just really, this is a precious commodity. But my friend, man, I just turned and watched, and he just plunged his chip deep into the dip, and would bring it out with like a foot-high pile of this dip with every single chip so that every single one of his bites was like 20 of mine. I was just like, tears would come to my eyes with every single bite that he would take. It was terrible. But what was happening was that we had a different perspective on the dip, right? He, he was just ripping through it with no concern for anybody else at the table. But I was thinking of it as this precious thing that I wanted to make last. And what Paul's trying to help us do is to see our liberties as this precious secret that we can hold between us and God. Like we do not have to hold that out in front of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's okay for them to be what Paul describes rhetorically as weak. It's okay for them to struggle to become okay with the degree of liberty that you enjoy. It's okay for it to take time to come unleashed from this history of legalism, this past of being bound by meticulous rule keeping or legalism. It, it, it takes time to come away from that kind of history. And Paul says that the best way forward is for us to elevate our brothers and sisters above the liberties that we hold so dear. And it's not just best for them, but it's also best for us. Because it means that our liberties get to remain a gift instead of being transformed into condemnation because we flaunt them. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats 
because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And I love this passage because what Paul's doing is he's tapping into the central doctrine of Christianity, justification by faith, right? And we've talked about justification by faith countless times in the course of studying Romans. Remember, justification is how we are brought into right standing with God. He changes us from a position of enemy to a position of friend. He actually changes our location in regards to him. We get on his friend's side instead of his fighting side, right? That's what happens in justification, and it can only happen by faith. You would think that you could pile up enough good deeds, that you could stand on top of those good deeds and reach high enough to merit God's favor just on the basis of the good things that you do. You would think it just seems intuitive that you could do that. But because our brokenness runs so deep, we start with what philosophers call like an infinite regress, right? And because we have that infinite regress, we can never do enough things to overcome it because the deficit is infinity, right? And you can do addition as long as you want to if you're starting from an infinite deficit and you can never get back in the black. Are you with me? And that's what it's like for us to be indebted to sin, and so we can never pile up enough good deeds to overcome it. The only way that we can be right with God is through the accomplishment of Jesus Christ, who actually transports us into right standing with God. Jesus does that by making us a new creation. He marks us as his own. And so it's his right standing. It's Jesus' right standing that we're tapping into. Right? It's not even, look, it's not even as though God is saying, okay, because of Jesus, it's all right, just come on in, right? I'm just going to be okay with it, just come on in. That, that's not what's happening. What's happening is that Jesus is the one who's accepted, and you're accepted because you're identifying with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, yes, they're part of my acceptance, right? You don't get your own acceptance because of Jesus. No, you get accepted in Jesus' acceptance, you see that? Jesus Christ is the only one who's acceptable to God. And we get to join in his acceptance before God. In Christ, we're justified. In Christ, we're friends of God. In Christ, we are no longer strangers and aliens. In Christ, we have all the benefits of the gospel because they are Christ's benefits. And it's this doctrine of faith, by placing our faith in him, that we gain these benefits. It's this that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. It's the thing that separates Christianity from the Judaism that dominated Paul's day. It is this faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to make yourself right with God. Law can't do it. Your biology can't do it. Your genetics can't do it. Your national identity, cannot, nothing can do it except for Jesus Christ. And now Paul closes this passage with this crazy implication of the doctrine of justification by faith, which is whatever does not proceed from faith is 
sin. What's he saying? Well, I think he's pulling up the hardwoods to reveal the subfloor. Because think about it this way. If I ask my kids, and I say, look, you cannot play in the backyard today, right? That, that's the command that I utter. But then they understand me to have said, you cannot play outside today. I said no backyard. They hear no outside play. Okay. And now they decide that they're going to go outside and play in the front yard. Right? Check this out. Have they broken the law that I issued? They have not, right? They've obeyed exactly what I said. But they think they disobeyed. And therefore, check this out, they disobeyed. You see that? Because if you pull up the hardwood and look at the subfloor, you have a sinful, rebellious subfloor driving this decision. That's why Paul says whatever is not from faith is sin. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. What matters is if you think it's wrong, it's wrong, dude. (laughs) Because you now can only do it from a heart of rebellion. That's why it's so important that we don't press our liberties on other people. Because we're pressing them into disobedience. We know it's fine, and it is fine. But it's not fine for them because they don't think it's fine. (laughs) Right? So now if they do that, they're sinning. Because they're doing what they think God doesn't want them to do. And so Paul is actually unveiling the reality of sin and righteousness. It's not about a list of rules. It's about our relatedness to God. And how we act in relation to who God is. So that God is the determination of right and wrong. And so what this becomes, this entire passage, it's really wild. It kind of becomes an articulation of classical virtue ethics. Because in classical virtue ethics, the entire philosophy is that if you want to live a good life, all you have to do is get all your loves in the right order. You just line up everything that there is to love in the world, and you make sure you put the most important thing first, Second most important thing, second. Third most important thing, third. If you get everything in order and you act like it, you're living the good life. And that's really what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, your first love is God. Your second love is your brothers and sisters in Christ. And far below that is the liberty that you have because of Christ. And if you get those out of order... It doesn't matter if you're doing things that on the list of right and wrong are right. They're still wrong. You see that? And so the goal of the Christian life is to order our affections so that we love God above all and that all the rest of our loves are an expression of our love for God and our gratitude towards him. And then we can live the life that St. Augustine put this way. He said, love God and do as you please. You ever heard that before? Love God and do as you please. That's how he sums up the entire Christian life. I like the way Waylon Jennings put it. Have fun, do what you want to. 
right? That's the Christian life in summary. But it has to be ordered under this prime, this prime affection for God. I, I fall so short of that. Man, my affections run in every direction. The amount of sleep that I get determines my affections. The timing of my first cup of caffeine determines my affections. Right? My digestion determines my affections. The level of chaos that my kids are bringing into my day determine my affections. And it, it is hard to maintain this existential affection toward God. But here's the beautiful thing. This is what, this is what holds us together as Christians. All of us are going to ride that roller coaster. Some of us are going to be more or less aware of it than others, but we're all going to ride it. But here's what's happening. Inside of our chaotic exterior, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is loving God in and through us. He's calling out in our hearts that God is our Father. And he's ordering the deepest places of our souls according to the truth. And according to the deepest realities that hold the world together. That's what Paul means when he says that the Holy Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, in our hearts, right? He's reminding us of this deep affection that we have for God in the deepest part of ourselves, in the truest part of ourselves. And so... The Christian life, the, the essential of the Christian life is yielding, yielding to the Spirit's influence more and more day by day so that we become those who actually, we don't just know of this affection that we have for God theologically, but we experience it. We experience it in the ebb and flow of our daily lives, living what Paul calls this life of righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is the Christian life. So I want to ask you guys, check this out. In the end, here's what Paul's asking us to do. He's asking us to stop judging through a magnifying glass or a telescope or whatever it is that we point toward others and instead start judging in the mirror. So stop judging by looking at others and start judging by looking at ourselves and stop adjudicating our decisions on the basis of what we want only, but rather adjudicate our decisions on the basis of love for our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Paul is so deadly clear. Um, God, thank you for the gift that it is to be part of a church of people who truly love each other. And Father, I pray that you would safeguard the unity of this church, that you would ensure the unity of this church, that we would be those who, who elevate our love for our brothers and sisters above our love for the liberties that we have in Christ. God, that we would cherish our liberties, that we would treat them as precious commodities to be held in secret between ourselves and you and those whom we know it is safe to share them with. 
It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.